so we're going to delve into the creation and delivery of immersive sound today. Um, it's not a new topic, but um, but there's still a lot of misconceptions out there, and um, hopefully we're going to uh, illuminate a lot of things for you. Um, Scott, actually, let me just ask you one question before we, we start. What are some of the big misconceptions that you're still hearing in the industry? Um, that it's hard, and, <laughs> and that you need to have your speakers in a super precise position and you need to spend a lot of money on equipment and uh, and it, that it's scary but really it's just three dimensions instead of two and um, the panner goes up and you know it's like don't overthink it is my message uh, and then Netflix in particular has no expectations on how an, an Atmos mix should sound it's about telling the story and letting the creatives be free to, to do whatever they need to get the job done so we're going to start at the start. Stephen, I'm actually going to ask you to begin. Um, would you tell us um, when do you get involved and what are some of those early discussions that you're having with the director and the producers uh, to plan a, a project that's going to have immersive sound? So first of all, I want to say thank you for everybody being here. It's really an honor for all of us to talk to you guys. Um, and truthfully, the way that we get going with a film is um, the director, uh, we get, you know, we have to all go through a process. We're all working as independent people, um, making relationships and developing uh, our crafts and then interviewing with directors and producers and then hopefully get a show and work on that show. And it takes years and years of, of building that craft and working with people and teams. There's no sole per person that does it alone. And then I get the opportunity to sit with a director. And normally, uh, on most films, it's very early on the stages. So some of the ideas and some of the things that they're suggesting, um, you have to look at it kind of like you're building a recipe for a great meal. And you have to put together all of their ideas. And there's all different types of, of sound ideas that you try to play into it. You interpret their process and you take that's the first step and then the second step is working with your picture editor simultaneously who also has a, 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 a concepts as well because they're on the film much earlier than we are. We get to read the script early but they're part of the production and so they're seeing things not just through the camera but they're seeing things that are off the camera that we have no idea about. They're seeing things in visual effects that, that we don't know about yet. We're looking at an empty scene and there may be, it may be filled with things flying all through the air. So all of those ideas get thrown to us and we have to start building that stuff to support the picture until the visual effects catch up, catches up with the picture. And so it's a storyline that's always evolving. It's always changing and it's always growing because there's a, this mix of, well, I love that, I don't like that, I like that, I don't like that. And you're constantly building this recipe of sound to match what the director and the picture editors and producers and the studio all are trying to put on the screen. So you're trying to tell the story uh, with them, but on, on, for all intents and purposes, your job is to make sure that it's seamless in the sense that the story is being told, not the sound is telling the story. The actual picture is telling the story. And Paula, same question. Would you share when you're getting involved in those early, the early planning? Oh, well, not soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, sadly, with all good best intentions, um, we're often brought on, you know, way late. And and I can say, I mean, I've been thinking about this because I don't know that my role as a pure sound designer has changed radically with immersive sound. I mean, anybody who's been working in 7.1, 5.1, all the kind of surround formats, knows that, you know, the trick is, the key is, when you're working with the teams to putting the feast together, um, that tells the story, you know, separation as much as absolutely possible is key. Where they end up putting those separate pieces, whether it's way up in the air, whether it's over here, over here, behind you, whatever, that, you know, that is something that is really determined on the mix stage when all the elements are in place. So from a design point of view, the only extra thing is knowing that that's a possibility, that stuff will be flown up overhead or moved around more um, is something that one can keep in mind. But the name of the game still is to find the elements. I mean, as a sound designer, I always say it's like my job, as I see it, for the kind of work that I like to work on is to run to the edges of the universe and bring back all the weird treasures. Mm -hmm. The weird treasures that can tell the story, that's something unique that you can attach to, whether it's attaching other ideas or, you know, f you know this, I mean, how many sound designers in this room have been told, you know, we just want to hear something that's never been heard before. <laughs> so it's a very, I mean, and I love that part of the job because it's really about dreaming like a child and thinking about stuff. From that point of view, immersive sound technologies have not radically made any changes to my workflow, except I get to dream about them being going up and down and all around, as opposed to just sticking to the walls. So um, hearing people's work in Atmos, especially object-based panning, because we're now in this kind of interesting time when there's a whole lot of experimentations. We have ambisonics. We have volume-based panning, object-based panning, and, and anybody who's done any comparisons, I, I got the chance to do that this summer. I mean, there's no question that object-based panning is, gives you clarity and precision unlike any other. Um, and it's beautiful. Um, and it's beautiful to hear when a, a, a mixer with fabulous chops takes your stuff and places them so beautifully to tell the story. And I, I enjoy that part of it. But like I said, with workflow, I don't think it's changed radically, honestly. And Cheryl, when you're do, when you're holding both roles as a designer and the re-recording mixer, what are you thinking about early on that you're going to apply throughout the process? Well, I, I have to agree. It's it's not soon enough ever, and and sometimes even if you are brought on uh, soon, it changes halfway through. So it, it it's just kind of one of these journeys that you have to go on. Um, yeah, my process is just it's about the same, uh, but I do get to do both, which allows me to start integrating with my sound design what I envision for the mix. So it's not a separate stage, a separate uh, process. And I find that it allows me to play more with different things. So if I'm doing a sound and I, it's just not working for me sonically in the mix, I know right away. So that that's awesome. And for my workflow, I, it has radically changed a little bit because I've started even doing my 5-1 mixes in Atmos. Uh, because the object-based panning is so much fun. <laughs> it's just so much fun. And it's easier, per Scott. And it also sounds better. Like, when it goes down to 5.1, it goes down to 2.0. The texture is there. It maintains the texture so much better. So that's, that has radically changed my workflow. And it also evergreens the, the process for future dates for 
directors who come back six months later and say, oh, this Atmos thing, what am I doing? <laughs> so, it, so in that way, that has changed my workflow. Tony, has it changed your schedule? Do you start earlier? Do you have more time? Or is well, time again the issue? <laughs> time is always an issue. But, um, you know, depending on the project, you know, I'll, I'll be on early. Steve and I collaborate a lot on uh, films here, uh, Columbia Films and films for Marvel. And, um, you know, it depends. You know, we, we try to get on as early as possible on the bigger movies so that we can, you know, strategize and... Um, figure out exactly how we're going to approach the film. Um, but then I work on other films where I'm not, you know, we're not in either a design role or a supervising role. <clears throat> and um, those vary much, you know, very, there's a high degree of variability in terms of the schedules. Um, something like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse had a very long schedule. Um, uh, other ones much, will be much shorter. We're doing one now that Steve and I will do, which will be much shorter. So um, it just depends, uh, you know. I think early on, you know, people said, "Oh, in Atmos, you have to add all this extra time up front, to or at the end to to do your Atmos up mixing." And so it was like weeks on, you know, added in to the schedule. And now it's just when we mix natively, it it's just a normal schedule. So. And and it's pretty standard now that you're mixing, you're doing the Atmos mix first. Correct. Yeah, native Atmos first, and then generating all the fold downs from there. And, and how is that process working for you when it's, you're doing It's been the working great. Versions? I mean, you know, there, there is a bit of a, you know, in, in the 5-1 days, going from 5-1 to 2-track, you'd always go, oh, you know, it never quite feels the same, you know, in 2-track as it does in 5-1. But, um, you know, I think the fold-downs are really working well. Um, the, everybody has their different kind of recipes they like to use for, you know, taking it from 7-1 down to 5-1 and all those kinds of things. And we experiment with that. We say, oh, maybe we like, on this version, we're going to make it a little bit different. But um, uh, I think it's going really well, and I think you know, it's translating well. People hear the 5-1 down mixes out in the field and go, wow, it sounded great. So, And since this is ultimately about storytelling and creativity, could maybe one of you give an example from a recent project? Well, <clears throat> I guess the, 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 the storytelling I can give you, the best example was... Um, the end of Spider-Man, I don't know how many people saw it, I'm sure plenty of you did, but um, the whole film originally had the drones in the, in the end sequence just shooting guns. And um, Marvel and director came to me and said, we just think it's just too much. We need to make it different. We need to tell the story differently. So instead, we're going to take these guns and they're gonna become Guns, flamethrowers, sonic cannons, and grenade launchers. <laughs> and I swear to God, I looked at them and said, excuse me, the wall just moved. Hold on a second here. And to watch what they did with the story, because it's just seven minutes of just all sound, and it is a clip that we'll be showing at the end of the day, um, to see how they made the story that gave us the ability to put all this cool sound in and to be able to Tony to, to, to pan it back and forth and, and all of a sudden everything became this story and there was very little dialogue. That was one of the true opportunities of a lifetime because they gave us um, uh, uh, an opportunity to 
to go for it. And, and gratefully, I had Tony and Kevin O'Connell and a great team of people all working with us. And, and we were able to put the sound everywhere so that it was not uh, uh, hurting you. It was more entertaining you. And, and that's truly the best example I could ever give. In my own entire career, that is the best example I could ever give. Okay. Cheryl, maybe you'd like to provide one? Well, I did have an interesting uh, film, which I'll talk about in the panel later today, where the director decided not to pay for sound in the field. I, I, I live in a different world. I live in the world of nonfiction. And so he came into the room, and we've been building and building and building for weeks because he didn't get any sound. It was almost entirely MOS. And um, so he walks in, and, and, and he's like, oh, this Atmos. he loved Atmos. And the best thing ever for me was he said, that's the way it sounded in the field. That's how it sounded. So for me, that was great. And he never wanted to listen to stereo or 5.1. He always only just wanted immersive, 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 immersive. So he, he got his eyes opened up, and, and he did promise me he'd take a sound person next time. So, yeah. So, but it, it was interesting. So, uh, it, it, so I don't know. Did that answer your question? Okay. All right. Um, and then let's also touch on animation. Um, Tony, when when you're working, you don't have production sound. Yeah, <laughs> so correct. are there added challenges there? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, in Spider-Man in the Spider-Verse, you know, it, it basically was one giant optical uh, effect. So, you know, it, it we went into that one approaching it like we were going to be doing a live action Spider-Man, knowing that they were going to be making changes the entire time. Um, which doesn't happen a lot in animation. Animation usually gets delivered to you. It's pretty close. It doesn't change a whole lot because they're locked in. They can't change the picture a bunch because then they have to reanimate those. If they move with something afoot, then they have to reanimate. So, but this one was different. They were going to keep making picture changes the entire time. It was one giant visual effect, essentially. And so every time we put up the picture, it was completely different. And so it was being able to react to that and and keep up with that and and that's why that one took a little bit longer than you know they normally take is because it was a constant process of we have a new version of this or we're making now now miles is going to be doing this he's going to be flying across the top of the ceiling and doing all these things and so um, it was you know it was almost as if doing the spider-man like steve and i've been doing um, where you know it, we just had to keep up with that, and and um, and we, great. Fortunately, we had a great team. Jeff Rubey is a supervising sound editor here, and had a great team. And um, myself, Michael Semanic, and we just ground on it, and and just kept going until we got it done. So, okay, um, Caleb, we're going to switch to you. So, what are the cons you've you, we, when we spoke before? You said you actually do have quite a bit that you have to think about differently if you know it's going to be immersive sound. So, what are um, some of the things that you're thinking about and planning when you're starting? Yeah, it definitely changes if it's theatrical versus episodic or like streaming. Um, because with theatrical, you have a lot more time. You kind of go highest common denominator and work your way down for deliverables. Um, but with episodic, you have a lot more of a time crunch. So day one, if you don't walk in knowing what you need to deliver, it can be a huge issue. Because the way you have to uh, configure the RMU and things like that. So like... Um, 714 minimum requirement for Netflix is, you know, it's something that people often, uh, they, they mix up, you should mix a 916, I'm sorry, I'm getting <laughs> nervous. 
Okay, let's just start. You're among friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so basically the thing is, is if you the way you set up your beds and your objects in episodic, you need to deliver re-renders. So that you have you know, your DME stems, dialogue music effects, or maybe some broadcasters want to deliver a BG stem or what have you. If you set up only DME in your RMU and you say like episode six, someone walks in and says, hey, can we get a BG stem because our other you know, production company wants one. That's a huge reconfiguration. And that means you have to print and reprint a bunch of material, especially if you've done six hours worth of content, that can be detrimental to a budget. So like that kind of stuff, if it's not thought out from day one, can be a big deal. Whereas like in 5.1, it was a lot easier just to reconfigure because you're just working within Pro Tools. But the RMU, you kind of have to stick with that configuration unless you want to do massive changes in the you know, downstream. And I've seen people eat handfuls of money by doing that, which is unfortunate. <laughs> so basically, you're saying film's a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, basically, yes. Because you, just, you, know, you, you mix the highest common denominator you know, 128 objects, and then blah, blah, blah. You can do a printmaster bed and not have to worry about saying this object is a FX object or this object is a music object because you can just say everything's agnostic and work your way down. So what I got to tell you guys is <laughs> we've never met, but I want to let you guys know that. When this technology evolves and sound evolves, thankfully, there are people that are giving us tools there are people like this that create a foundation for us so that we can do our job. And they make it possible to take these very complicated um, uh, systems and make it seem like you just at 9 a.m. you've got to roll. And these are the people that make that happen. And we couldn't do our jobs without smart people like this. And it really does make a difference. So, so when we're talking RMU and we're talking 128 tracks and we're talking sound positioning, it all of a sudden, it just evolves into one job to another job. And I think what we all get into is, is that this business just keeps growing. But, you know, the, the ultimate reality is that people are just looking at the same thing. They're looking at the screen. They're looking at their phones. They're looking at their TVs. But they don't see the background that's happening behind the scenes. And, and yeah. here's one of the guys that makes it really, really special. Yeah, it's just, it can be, especially, you have a lot of things, especially in episodic, where it seems like there's a mass expansion right now and a lack of, like, Atmos rooms, right? Because Netflix and all these streaming providers want things delivered in Atmos. You know, Alula, which is Apple's new streaming thing, they want Atmos. So they're saying, hey, you know, build Atmos rooms. Well, depending on your time and your budget, maybe you do the minimum, which is 714, but... Sometimes that can actually inhibit the creative process because, like, if you're a mixer, the mixing, the difference between mixing in seven one four and nine one six, is a big difference, especially when you're talking about object-based panning. Because right. a bed, essentially seven one two, is the highest bed you can have, and a lot of people pan within beds, which means you have seven one and you have overheads left and right stereo. Seven one four minimum requirement just adds front and rear overhead, but it doesn't change the 7.1. You're essentially still mixing the 7.1 or monitoring and such, because that's your B chain, the 7.1.4. So if you're mixing with an object in a 7.1.4 monitoring environment, you're actually not hearing that big of a difference between a bed and an object. Whereas 9.1.6, you're adding an additional front speaker, so then you really start to notice the difference between an object and a bed panning. But if you have someone that's engineered a room and built it in 714, the mixer may not perceive the difference 
If it's their first time mixing in Atmos, they may go, well, why would I even use an object? This is a waste of my time. I'll just mix in beds. But if you take that to a 916 room, then it becomes very different and apparent, and you see the advantage of objects. But I see it all the time where people are working with the new format. They haven't mixed in Atmos before. They go, well, this is just a headache. Why are we doing this? It's a pain, big pain in the butt, because they can't perceive what's actually happening. And you know, a lot of people say, well, for home theater, why would you even mix a 916? Well, I mean, at least I think the technology is coming. Binaural fold downs, the synthesis in stereo, you're going to go from having 5% of the population that can listen to Atmos and like Netflix to 95? It's going gonna, it's gonna to jump real fast. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's like what you're doing now is if you have an ADM, which is your delivery format, B-Wave ADM, that has all that Atmos data, once they figure out the hardware component, then all of those mixes that we've made, boom, are Atmos. And the guys that mixed in beds using 714, that modern environment or 712, their mixes are going to be inferior, or, well, they're going to have less creative option than the guys that had done 916 monitoring environments, or higher, even higher. Um, we see that so, on the feature side, too. Some, some people are afraid. They're just like, I'm just going to keep everything in the 7.1 and, and yeah. work with it that way. But, but what Caleb's getting to, uh, the most important thing that I'm getting from Caleb is you've got to plan, you've got to organize from right. the very beginning. You have to communicate the kinds of things that are going to be happening all through the stream because from the time Paula makes a sound all the way through, it goes through my hands and then goes through his hands to Scott, it's got to be planned out and thought out. Otherwise, what are we doing, you know? So, um, uh, and again, you know, it's great we have people like these guys down here who help us keep us on track, you know, because we could just go off into the weeds. But, but you know, the, the biggest takeaway is to just stay organized, communicate and and things will will work out yeah because we love it it sounds so good exactly <laughs> well let's talk, let's talk about planning for that next step is the, the deliverables so you have uh you have various formats and then you have uh theatrical you have home entertainment uh, scott maybe you'd like to start with that what are the what do we need to be thinking about and at what point to have these different deliverables it, it is more complicated with a film if you start with a theatrical mix. Um, although one thing that some people don't know is you can convert between theatrical and home very easily. Uh, and then the biggest difference is the dynamic range difference. It's like the level. Just like it's always been the difference. Um, but uh, so if it's a film, there's necessarily a theatrical Atmos pass and then a home Atmos pass. If it's series, which is the majority of our content is series, documentary, things that originate in home theater Atmos, um, we really are trying to move to a scenario where we have only one deliverable, which is the B-Wave ADM streaming master. Um, this is going to take a few years. This is not like something to look for next year. But this is the goal is to leverage Atmos as a mezzanine format and derive 5.1 stereo and all stems automatically from Atmos. Um, it requires a lot of metadata controls to make sure that we're making the 5.1 the way the mixers intend. So that's the biggest thing that's going to take some time to work out. Um, but what we have right now is a situation where it's an extra thing. So you're delivering all your 5.1 and stereo traditional deliverables and also Atmos. Um, when Atmos moves into IMF starting the first quarter of next year, everything starts to get easier. Um, so we're really excited about that. And we're constantly thinking about simplifying the deliverables so that people can just be creative and not have to think about making 
a massive amount of files. Um, so it's not the same for every studio, but for us, it's it's mostly the we're thinking about Nearfield, we're thinking about the Home Theater Master, uh, and the B Wave ADM, um, and and then we have theatrical content where there's two sets of deliverables. Although we've had some theatrical content where the mixer delivers one mix to both, um, which is pretty edgy these days <laughs> to think about, but it, it can work uh, if you if you if the dialogue's just a little bit sometimes a little bit hotter sometimes what you would do anyway. Our spec is generous enough that you can you can sometimes fit in with a theatrical mix and be in spec for near field as well. So, so is there an effectively a de facto delivery standard at this point, or is everybody doing things differently? Many studios take your Pro Tools session and then they master themselves. Um, that doesn't scale for Netflix because we're we're commissioning too much content right now, and we want it to be something where we can receive something from the mix house or the IMF finishing house that we can encode right away. Um, we don't have an army of people to, to master everything. So I think the industry's coalescing around uh, B-Wave ADM and IAB, uh, and I know Sony is big on IMF as well, so that's a very helpful way where we're starting to come together and take things in a similar way. Um, IMF is a great, it's a great mezzanine format for picture and sound, so. That's probably maybe the way it's going. And do, you, do, do any of you think that there are standards in different parts of the process that are needed, or do you find that that is limiting from a creative standpoint? It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem limiting. I mean, um, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, I, you know, I mixed a film that ended up uh, going to Netflix about a year and a half ago and had a chance to chat with Scott about it, certain things and how they approach their, their distribution and stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, we're all for whatever makes the, the content flow. I mean, obviously, content is, has boomed and, and because of all these various streaming platforms. And, you know, so it's just more work for everybody. So, you know, let's, let's embrace it. And, and you know, if, if Netflix leads away and, and along with others, AES, and, and they all come up with a standard that seems to be the, the way that's going to get everything going where it needs to go, then let's do that. Yeah, one, one standard that I've seen that some people have kind of pitched that I'm very weary about is like the idea of standardizing what types of beds and objects you should have required for a mix. So some people have pitched the idea of maybe saying, okay, so you have 128 channels, for lack of a better term, and then those can be allocated into either beds or objects. If you want to make a re-render, you need to assign a bed and an object to a designated flavor, essentially. So if you want to make a 5.1 music stem, you need to tell the RMU which bed is a music and which objects are music, which means that you are dictating a finite amount of objects and beds from the get. And what's scary about standardization is if someone in an, in an office or someone that's worked on one or two projects says, well, I think that they can have 12 music objects, and that would be great. I would guess that that would not fit every mixer here. I, that is true. Yeah, is true. I I have to agree. I'm very weary of that too. And yeah. and my experience is the same. We I do a lot of episodic as well, right. and a lot of grouping, a lot of a lot of beds. And you can do an LCR bed. You don't have to do a full exactly. bed. And and so if you're putting out standards of you have to do it this way. It's really tying down the project. You totally. don't you don't have the flexibility to do the do what is best for that project, and that's that is scary. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I'm always standing up for mixers basically to see what they want because 
from a facility standpoint, it makes total sense to have I/O standards and stuff so you can move from room to room. But it becomes really hard when you you know you've got an, a mixer that wants to have these objects or these and. It's a constant push-pull because obviously we do have budgets in mind and things that we have to get to get the workflow to go better, but it's a tricky thing. Yeah. Very, very tricky. It, I did uh, one mix in three different facilities this year, and it was pretty much a nightmare because, you know, you'd go to one facility and they had their Maddie set up this way or their totally. I.O. set up this way, and then I'd go to another facility and they frown at me for doing it that way. And it, it, it was a little... A little challenging. At the end of the day, the only thing I can really recommend is that if you know you're moving facilities very early on, make it as easy and simple as you can and clear cut. And always, always, always export your your config from the RMU yeah. and your Pro Tools config because otherwise you won't be able to cleanly go into any other facility. That's um, so. For what I also wanted to touch on was the. Um, the home experience or the personal experience. So when you're doing the mix, it could be viewed on a mobile device. It could be on very different home setups, on laptops. Um, how does that impact your process? Are you thinking about these things when you're when you're working on it? Cheryl, you're nodding. Do you want to start? Oh, absolutely. And the setup time I do, besides just the beds, I always listen to all the fold downs of what I'm mixing or the re-renders of what I'm listening to before I even get past the first minute or the first five minutes. I'm, I'm like jumping around going, how does this sound here in 517120? And, and just setting up everything so that when I'm actually mixing, I've already made those decisions and I know what it's, what it's sounding like. And I always flip back and forth between everything and small small speakers, TV speakers, just like you do for 5.1, you know. So absolutely, especially with nonfiction, when you don't have the liberty or the luxury on the big stage to go, okay, we just finished the Atmos mix, now we're going to do the 5.1 or the right. 7.1 or the stereo. Yeah, totally. You know, you don't have that luxury. So you have to make sure that everything's uh, folding down, re-rendering fine. And to that end, um, I, I do a lot of compressing and limiting on both objects and beds so that I don't have to worry about true peaks on the on the re-renders and compressing is, totally. is happening. So, so it, you'll build on your limiting in at, I have as to, part of that process. Because yeah. I don't have I don't have time to, to do all the other passes. And if I don't do that, then I won't pass QC. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing. So uh, there's like the broadcasting standards you always have peak limitation, right? So like my two peak limit is pretty standard. But what's what's really hard is that objects and beds sum within the RMU. So there's no way to peak limit until you make a re-render, basically, and you have to run it in through an auxiliary or whatever and then print it that way. But if you just play that re-render raw out of that Atmos file, ADM, or, you know, it can be have a higher peak than what you, you know, want, and it can be really hard to wrangle since there's no limitation. How have you dealt with that, Scott? <laughs> Please tell us how you dealt with that. <laughs> no, no pressure. Because no, he's an expert Please at tell it. Us. He's, he's, he's no, and for real though, he's the expert at it. Like we always go back and forth and deal with stuff like this. Yeah, well, tell it, us. It didn't work for mixers because you, you couldn't stay in the bounds. So it was unreasonable to have that enforce that peak limitation for re-renders. So we uh, we ask that people use limiters on beds and objects on their way to the uh, RMU, but then when they sum inside the render, if they go over, we'll for, we, we, we do those as FYI on the QC report. We don't enforce that. 
Um, because one thing that a lot of people don't know is the peak spec is there to protect decode side devices. Um, but if it's a proprietary format like Dolby formats, Dolby streams protect that. So you can go full scale on a Dolby format and it's okay. So because it's Dolby with Atmos, you can go, you can clip, you can go to zero, just like on a DCP like for film. Um, the, the reason we have minus two is we want a similar experience for every stream, for every device. Um, so we try to stay within the minus two because if it's an open standard like AAC, you can build an AAC decoder without really following the rules and make a mistake, and then you can create audible distortion on the output side. So we don't want um, members to ever hear your mix compromised by distortion on the device. You know, just if you don't mind, I think what, what, what's great about all of us, the one thing that I'd like to just say is it, the, the main theme here is time. And it really doesn't make a difference if you're working on TV, features, vignettes, any documentaries. There's always some, some uh, area where you, you don't ha never have enough time. Because Scott put it best, he, he said early on, it's, we want to make sure the story is being told. And it takes time. And you can't take the human element out of a director. You can't take the human element out of being in a room of creative people working on a, a project. We're just one part of it. But it takes time because it, it, it just keeps evolving. And, and then it just becomes a situation where it has to, has to fit the schedule. And it has to make sense. And that's where being organized and experience and communicating um, helps you. But there's none of us that sit in a room that could ever tell you we have all the time in the world because time costs money. And so there's that balance too. So there's this constant pendulum between the art and business that we always have to struggle with so that we can do our jobs the best way we can so that, so that it can be delivered properly, so it can be folded down properly, so that we have to make those decisions early, early on and be organized so that we don't run into situations that cost time. And then all of a sudden, it's not as creative as we wanted it to be. Right, because you're making up for technical things where you could be using those as creative things. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. Um, something else I wanted to ask all of you about, it certainly seems like I'm hearing more about use of Atmos in the music industry. Um, are you seeing that? And how is that? Do you see any crossover? Or is that blurring the lines in your roles at all? It hasn't showed up uh, on on the mix stage quite yet. You know, we're still getting stuff, music delivered in five ones, essentially five ones, five O's, those kind of uh, stem formats. And and you know, in, until we start seeing, oh, we have this Atmos session, we'd love to have you play back our music in Atmos. Until those days get here, I'm you know, I'm not sure how far off that is. It's probably not that far off, but but um, it hasn't gotten here quite yet. But um, it's coming. It's coming. Uh, there's an interesting thing. It was just released yesterday. Um, a friend of mine assisted on it, Remote Control. It was an Atmos mix for a new Sturgill Simpson record that was released on Spa on Netflix, Sound and Fury. And like it's basically, a it's his album, and they came in and mixed it in Atmos. And then it's like a 40-minute music video, essentially. It's all animated. So like that was the first time I'd heard of it, like really being like, a huge artist, you know, Grammy Award winning, that's like, hey, let's do it at most from start to finish. But it's for a streaming, you know, stream set. Yeah, I think, I, I think another interesting thing is sort of 
the kind of explosion of um, ambisonic microphones and whatnot. Um, and they're great, but like, it, you know, if, if I as a designer or an editor show up with my beautiful set up all with ambisonic recordings and stuff, it's like that shit's getting thrown off the stage. Right. <laughs> so it doesn't, it, then you have stuff baked in or you can't. I mean, and again, what I was talking about before, my job in terms of preparing material is layers and layers and layers of details and things that can be grabbed in an object and thrown around the room, which takes away the possibility of using uh, multi-channel recordings, which is an interesting thing. I mean, they're fun to play with, and I've right. used them. It's a great little mic that's come out recently called the Xylia. I don't know if anybody's played with it. I saw it on Kickstarter. I picked it up, and it's actually fabulous. They're starting to kind of move in here, and you can record. You can record. It's a third-order ambisonic microphone. It has 19 capsules, and it's for under a thousand bucks. It comes with software. It's absolutely fabulous. And I recorded um, when I was in London last summer. Participated with a group of artists, and we created some uh, immersive um, sound compositions. And then we had two evenings of listening concerts. And one of, uh, one of my colleagues did a piece which was done in, in ambisonics, but he had a live musician also roving through, which is really interesting. So I recorded that with the uh, Xylion. It was beautiful. Um, and you can go out and do recordings and stuff with it, but to what end? I mean, they're fabulous to listen, you know, and for me to enjoy, but I could never use them um, in the work that we do because like, they are too constrictive in terms of... And, and, and these days with all the... Um, well, a couple of things. These days with all of the work and all of the objects and all of the complexity of the shows that are demanding this in a way, that are built for this, um, track, you know, track counts even with the doubling of them this year. Thank you, Avid. From the bottom of my heart, I was going to buy a new card, and now I don't have to. Um, but no, it, it it is something that you know. And I work at 96k all the time, so I can bend, stretch, pull as much as I want. But tracks become very, very valuable. So you know, if you show up with ambisonic recordings that are 16 <laughs> tracks wide and no one's going to use them, it's uh, you know, it's not. I mean, and and that's kind of I think down the road, as they all evolve, as all these formats evolve, there'll be a way where those things can be used because some of the software now you can extract certain elements and repan them and move them uh, after the fact, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in terms of where the technology is right now, it's, uh, you can't really use them for the work that we do. And we were talking earlier in the room before we came out here, and I just brought up the fact that I really believe that we're, sound is kind of ahead of the curve right now. Um, eventually, we're all hoping that there will be some way that um, the, the theatrical experience will be enhanced with some form of uh, 3D without type of, with no glasses, so that the, the picture is being brought off the screen um, with some holographic. Who knows what what they're what they're what they're what they're working on, and, and hopefully something special. Because I said this earlier in the room to Scott and, and and everyone else, we were a technology business before there were technology companies. The the movie industry, the TV industry, we were at the forefront of technology before there was. Uh, Microsoft and Apple and Google and we're still a technology business we're just not as as 
as as in in the um, in the in the in the sense of how people perceive us as much as they used to perceive us. But when 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 Paul is talking about a 19-channel uh, microphone, the 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 ability for a Pro Tools today to play a thousand tracks is probably going to be, and that's what we're all using here, uh, is probably going to be uh, a, a thing of the past when uh, two years from now, we're all working on these $12,000 Mac computers <laughs> that, that none of us can afford. Let's Cheese put graders. it out there. Cheese graders. Okay. And, 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 the, and the track count becomes 3,000 channels. And, 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 and that's a reality. And, and, and so we're, we're and, and it's the music industry as well. The sound is really, really pushing the envelope. And, and we just need, um, uh, at some point, there'll be a point when we're going to need more um, ability to tell that story. And hopefully picture, you know, visual effects are always uh, pushing the envelope. So eventually, all of these things and, and all these ideas and all these big technology companies are going to see a place for this to happen where these type of conversations will seem old school to comparison to this event three years from now. And, and well, look where we were three years ago. <laughs> right. I mean, I'll, I'll tell a little story. I did a, was early, late 2014, early 2015, and I did a, a, a movie uh, called Hands of Stone, um, the Roberto Duran story, and a Panamanian Venezuelan filmmaker, um, Jonathan Jakovowicz, and we, they were dying to do this in Atmos. And, and the fights, there were fights at Madison Square Garden and stuff. And so we were like, okay. But we were early adopters. And it was so unwieldy. I mean, unbelievable. It was so complicated and so difficult, and, and almost nobody was doing it. And we jumped in with both feet and thought, yeah, we're going to do this. Sadly, there's probably 10 people in the world who have seen the final mix. Who was It was beautiful because shortly after that, Weinstein bought the movie, cut it up, and refused to pay to have it reconform because then you could not cut into the panners because they'd hop all over the place. So if you made any picture changes, you actually had to redo it. And it was prohibitive for this little movie. And that beautiful mix was abandoned and was ne has never been heard. And but that was, we were so impassioned about it. And, you know, one of the things about sound, I mean, you're saying what the possibility for picture is, but, you know, the thing about sound is that we work in the most powerful medium there is. There is no other medium that can wrap itself around you, that can, you know, I, I've said in, in other places that, depending on my mood, I can make you grab your ears in pain or, <laughs> you know, relieve your bowels. I mean... <laughs> But what medium, what other medium is there that is capable of that? Even if picture bends and stretches and turns into holograms, which is years away, the power of sound that we have in our hands is something we've always had. And we're coming into our glory in a sense. I mean, I've waited. When I started out, my background is not film or sound. It's art. And I started out as a young artist. I heard the works of Robert Normandeau, who's a very well-known uh, Canadian electroacoustic artist who talked about cinema for the ear. And I was like, oh my god, you know, telling a story with no picture completely in sound. And I was so mesmerized by it and said, well, I want to do that. I want to do that. And that was 25 years ago. And I then embarked on this journey of exploring cinematic sound. You know, now we've come to a place 
where immersive sound formats, we have the ability to literally place ourselves in any space, and we will occupy this power for years to come. It will be forever until, like, probably not in any of our careers where we will see picture which will come off the screen and actually wrap itself around you. And it's a powerful format, and I think we're at this amazing time in history. I mean, some of us are old enough to have um, crossed over, seen the full transition from analog to full-on digital me being one of them, and it's fabulous. I love have, having that perspective, and who knows where it will go from now, but now we're entering the zone of immersive audio, which is something I've waited my entire career for, to be able to create sonic worlds that we can inhabit, that can you know, wrap around you and touch you, and the power of that and how it reaches deep into your soul. And no matter what happens with picture, you know, we have this at our fingertips, but we're also always at the mercy of these developing technologies. And what we're doing today will be obsolete, you know, a year from now, et cetera, et cetera. So it's... Um, and budgets and time. And budgets yeah, and time. Yeah, yeah. But look what's happened with, look what's happened with Atmos since, you know, we did that little, you know, film so many years ago. Now it's fully integrated into Pro Tools. And none of us would have thought that that would have been a thing then and now. It's so much easier. It's My God, it's go almost a non, you know, you almost don't even have to think about it. You know, it's just, it's, do I want it to go up, down, but, but there's none of this attaching and strapping and dragging a, along a, a shit ton of equipment. There's some, but not, not to the way bit, it was. Yeah. No, and it really unlocks the creativity. It unlocks it in, in, a, in a really amazing way, and I think we're all very, very lucky to be at this moment. I, I consider myself that because I, it's fabulous what's, what, where we're at and what's Agreed. coming. I want to make sure we have some time for questions from the sure. audience, but um, before we do, um, Scott, do you have any additional points you wanted to make from the delivery end that we didn't get to? How long do we have? Yeah. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Let's just do questions. Okay. <laughs> you, you sure? Do you want to do the questions? Okay, do we have questions? Oh, yes, in the front row. Hi. Uh, so my question is mainly for Cheryl and Paula, uh, but anyone else can chime in. Uh, so my question is mainly for Cheryl and Paula. Uh, but anyone else can chime in. Um, as far as wearing the hat of uh, designer and editor, how do you deal with object allocation across various pre-dubs? Or is that something you leave to the mixers? I, you know, for me, it's because I'm not, I've stayed away from the mixing end of it, although it keeps pulling me closer and closer. So, I'm, you know, and, and I'm, it's not that I'm not interested. It's just that I find there's... There's an endless amount of discovery just doing sound design. Um, what I do is I think about the things and where, you know, design things specifically for objects and, and, and perhaps place them uh, in, a, in a group or, or whatever on a set of tracks. But ultimately, it's what, you know, it's not for me to say at that point. Um, it's when all the elements come together and how they sculpt it, you know, my job is to just give them lots of options and layers so that they have the ability to move things around. And, and I can envision in a certain way and present it that way, but it never, I mean, that's, I'm doing it without music and dialogue and all those things that get in the way. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the dialogue does always get in the way. <laughs> dialogue always does get um, Could I, you keep your hand up if you had questions? Please? I do uh, organize from the get-go what's happening, and I work with my sound designers, because sometimes 
the project's just too big and I can't handle it and I'd rather be fresh for the mix. So we always talk about how we're going to organize it so that at the end I can just do what I need to do and where I want to do. And I really try to do it as straightforward as possible. Uh, documentary, sometimes I, I walk in and I have like not a feature type of tracks, but it's people look at me like I'm crazy. But uh, it, so I just organize it. And so I know where to grab whatever I want to grab. It's it's not any different than any other project, really. It's, it's, but you have to be organized. Otherwise, you won't get through it. OK, we have another question on the side of the room. Hi, thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you guys for coming and, and talking with us. But um, my question is actually specifically for Caleb. Um, because I, I work at Roundabout, and we're kind of like a private post-production I used to work at Roundabout. Wow. Okay. All right. Cool. South That's Lake. actually South Lake, but yeah. South. South. All right. Well, uh, my question is: We actually just upgraded one of our stages because what you said, like the need for more Atmos stages, we actually upgraded to a, a seven one four but that's specifically being used for QC, not necessarily mixing. And I was kind of curious. Uh, I have a limited knowledge in, in, in all this so far. That's why I'm here. But um, is, is that kind of viable? Like if for, some, for someone to mix in like uh, 716, but QC in 714, does that make a difference? I mean, yeah, it, it, QC is totally fine because it's essentially the way Atmos is set up, it's 100% scalable. What goes in the RMU, it'll play it in a giant dub stage of the Cary Grant or whatever, it'll play in a little tiny room. So that's their idea is that no matter the speaker count, as long as you hit kind of the minimum, you have to have overheads, 714, then you can at least hear what is happening. Now, in terms of especially for home theater, um, it can get a little little interesting because also um, home theater does a thing called spatial encoding. So it'll like localize multiple objects that are in the same area to one point source. Um, has to do with DVD authoring or Blu-ray authoring and stuff like that, but uh, you can you hear a little less, but you're not really judging pan moves and stuff like that in a QC room. So you'll be able to monitor everything fine. It's more from a mixing standpoint where you really hear the advantages. I think. Thank you. Raise your hand, please. Oh, in the back. Um, can some of you talk about when working with sound editors and designers that maybe don't have an Atmos workflow? And is there a way to have a common template across formats? Or do, you know, how would you deal with that when trying to intake ads or, or things from editors and designers? Well, Steve and I, we've worked quite extensively on templates. Um, and so what we do with our crew, Steve is, is fortunate enough, he has, he has overhead speakers in his uh, editing suite. But uh, the rest of the crew is normally just working in 5.1. And so what we end up doing is we have the mix text on the stage. As I get done pre-dubbing a reel or whatever it ends up being, that goes back to editorial for conforming. The guys in there have a way to route all the objects out the center channel. And it's a bit of a cheat, but at least they can hear what's going on there so they can deal with the automation lanes and get it so that it, nothing's doing any funky thing. And then when it comes back to us, the mix tech then make sure all the objects are going where they need to go, and that's how we do it. In in you know going from a room like the Cary Grant to editorial and back, so not not ideal, but and eventually you know hopefully everybody will get to the point where they can monitor it you know overhead. But for right now, it's a little bit of a workaround. But we work extensively on a template, constantly updating our templates to make sure that you know we're we're getting the best workflow we can and sharing that across all our the crew and. And making sure that we, uh, we we get what we want out of it. So is it, sorry, a little bit of a follow. So is it the same template in Atmos and Five One? Just the monitoring is different. Yeah. Well, we have we're able to 
have a down mix in the, there's a down mix in the uh, template that allows them to then just click as a, it's an editor monitor path essentially, and then they can hear everything that's, that's going on. And then when it comes back to us, then we have the beds and objects and, and we, go, we just go back and forth. Pro Tools will also do a cool thing. Uh, there's an, uh, in the IO setup, there's a thing called the object fold down path. So it's a little tricky because you have to convince Pro Tools that it's looking for an RMU. So if you go into a Pro Tools system that doesn't have an RMU in the peripherals tab in the Atmos, if you turn on the Atmos tab, it will start looking for an RMU and then just type in an IP like zero and it'll say, I cannot find an RMU that you're looking for. I will fold all those outputs out of an object fold down path which you designate. So you can just make that your normal 5.1 or stereo output. So then you can actually take Atmos systems without changing any of the, the outputs, and then it'll just fold down those objects the best that it can to whatever your format is, whether it be stereo, 5.1, so on and so forth. So he just changed our template. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tip and trick you should all put in your, in your sessions. We have another question in the back. Yeah, I guess uh, following up on that, if you're a designer and you know that there's a timbre difference in the pan depth and you want to work, and I guess it's the production suite where you don't have an RMU, you don't have a machine slave, but you want to create beds just using that creative you know, workflow and print and listen to like a PCM version of that, not like a, an Atmos you know, encoded version. Is there a difference between what like a fold down sounds like in 5.1 uh, as a PCM deliverable versus like what you know, maybe uh, a re-render five one sounds like, and is it worth it to design and build like just pre-dubs using that as like a design workflow, but still be a, you know living in a channel-based world just to get that aesthetic creatively? I'll that start with that. The the software in the Dolby Atmos production suite on the Avid Store for three hundred bucks is the same software in the home theater RMU, so same sound. Uh, and then if anyone else wants to go on that. Any other questions? Okay, we have a few minutes left, so can we just touch on delivery a bit more then? Any other final things that we need to know about? You're on the hot seat, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're in. <laughs> well, Tony suggested I talk about distribution, uh, that people might find that interesting. That's, that's pretty fascinating, actually. Okay. So when you deliver to Netflix, we have a cloud encoding platform that makes it into 100 or so uh, compressed streams. So there's AAC, Dolby Digital, Dolby Digital Plus, um, some legacy streams like WMA and OGG Vorbis. Um, we started a project in 2017 and then went for a year. We had a team of a bunch of engineers, a lot of engineers, that um, built an adaptive streaming engine. So now for 5.1 audio, it, the bit rate goes all the way from 192K to 640K. So just like your picture is adapting to your bandwidth, now this audio does too. And we have data that at 640K for Dolby Digital Plus, you're perceptually transparent. So we can send a creative home, have them boot up their Apple TV, and they can hear it exactly the way it was outputted to the speakers in the dub stage. Uh, and that's everyone in the world can hear the sound exactly the way the mixer intended. Uh, we can't make them have the right speakers. <laughs> 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 
but it's about protecting the pipe and optimizing every single experience. Um, and, and we're constantly wanting to upgrade all of our audio streams. And Atmos got a bump, too, in audio quality. Um, it's, it's all about per, protecting the creative intent of these guys and, and the directors and the showrunners so that they can trust what they're going to hear at home is what they delivered. Um, so that's, that's an important thing for us. Now the 100 streams is now like 200 streams. Um, but it's it's constantly pursuing that best quality. And the one thing I found interesting was you talked about how your servers and how they relate to the ISPs so that you can get the download speeds oh, yeah. to everybody. That's this is just how streaming is done now. And, and Netflix kind of did some of it on the early, early days, but there's servers co-located all over the world, thousands of servers. It's called the Open Connect platform. You can just Google it, and there's a lot of information. But it's a it's an internet where we deliver to these to directly to the ISP in different cities, and then they only have to get it to the customer's home, and that's why you don't buffer as much. Um, but now everybody in streaming is is working on this same thing. I also wanted to say one last thing, which is the soundbars are like the coolest thing to happen to us in a long time. <laughs> like I went to a, a Montana and I went to an Airbnb and there was a sound bar. And I'm like, awesome. unbelievable. Like people are hearing the work that we do, that we slave over for so long. They're actually getting that quality in the home now. And, and outside of immersive audio, just the fact that they're hearing it a little closer to right and not just out of a TV speaker is, is really a big deal. Um, and of the 30 or so million soundbars, a market that's like doubling every year, people are really buying these. Uh, at least three or four million of them are Atmos. That's like doubling every year. So it's really growing. And, and I love that we're now in a world where people are starting to hear sound the way it was intended. Uh, a little closer to that. It's great. So well on said. that, you... So we have to run. We actually nope. do have to bye wrap bye. up. Sorry, because we have another panel coming. <laughs> so, um, but I'm sure everyone will be staying if you have additional questions for the speakers. Um, and please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you.